Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. I'm going to read it if you can follow along. For to us a child is born. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior and battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, for this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Amen. You may be seated. Let me pray. God, we thank you for today. Uh, we thank you for all that you have done, but I pray that in this moment, as we have come to hear your word, I pray that there will be no distractions, but I pray for uh, a godly focus. Lord, as we hear your word today, that it would penetrate the very depths of our heart. Lord, that it would not be through my words, it would not be through my preparation, it would, be not, it would be not through my own actions, but it would be through you, Lord, that people's lives are transformed. And so we thank you for all that you have done. We thank you for what you will do in the next 20 to 30 minutes, and we are so excited for what you will do in the future. And so we thank you in the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Today's uh, sermon title... Uh, it's called The Meaning of Christmas, Part 2, right? Uh, preparing, you know, for me, preparing a Christmas uh, sermon is always a bit of a struggle. Um, and one of the reasons uh, why is because if you've attended church before, which I'm sure many of you have, then you know the Christmas story. And you know about all the things that have happened that Jesus was born in a manger. You've heard about the wise men. You know about the shepherds. You, have, you know the story so intimately. And we are so familiar with it that this year, in particular, I found myself struggling with finding something new to say. Because for me, as I look to you guys, and as I was preparing for today's sermon, I wanted so badly to be profound. I wanted so badly to be deep. And I wanted to be to the point where I could bring out something new from Scripture, something that we've read over and over again, and bring it out in a new light and have you guys saying, okay, wow. Well, I cannot believe that that is what Jesus was trying to say. I, I had no idea. That's, that's what I wanted for you guys. But you see, in the midst of that struggle, 
I was reminded that one of the reasons why we go back to certain passages and reiterate the same principles and tell the same stories is because the Christmas story is about telling the fundamental truth of who God is and what he did for us. And there's not a reason to try to repackage that or put into a new perspective because it is so absolutely foundational to the truth of being a Christian that all I need to do is speak plainly and simply and know that God, through that one single story, through that one fundamental truth, can change the lives of millions of people like he already has. And so one thing that I was reminded again and again as I was preparing and thinking over these past weeks is one thing that God, I felt like, kept saying to me again and again. Danny is not about complexity, it's about simplicity. Danny is not about trying to dress it up in some other way. It's not about trying to influence other people in a certain way. It's not about trying to do all these other things. It's about keeping it plain and simple and trusting that I will do the rest. You see, last week we started talking about the true meaning of Christmas. And how, over time, it has slowly disappeared from our culture. You see, when I was younger, I had this fascination with Christmas. I enjoyed all of the decorations. I liked all the Santa and reindeer and elves and all of those things. But you see, as I've gotten older, that fascination has turned into frustration because this season has become about only those things. When Christmas is truly about the miracle of the Son of God coming to earth. And not only that, being fully man and being fully God. And yet for us, over time, what has happened is the things on the fringes have become center and the thing that has become center has turned into the fringe. And for us, we focus so much on the gifts and the giving and the family and those types of things where we have totally forgotten the true meaning of Christmas. Look, don't get me wrong, church. I enjoy, I, I enjoy the Christmas season. I do. I enjoy putting up Christmas decorations at times. I like shopping online. I love spending time with my family. You know, I, I enjoy what's in Christmas, but what's frustrating is what's missing from Christmas. The thing that's frustrating, what I feel like, is the absence of the gospel story and the Christmas story. You see, what the world has tried to do with great success is take away the name of Jesus Christ from the very essence of Christmas. Because Christmas without a true recognition of who God is in Jesus, you see, it doesn't make sense. Something is missing from that. Something is out of order when we have all the festivities, but we are missing the true purpose of what we're trying to do. Let me try to explain it in my own way. It's kind of like having biscuits without honey. It's kind of like mashed potatoes without gravy. It's like chicken without hot sauce, or rice without kimchi. You know what I'm saying? It just doesn't make sense. I don't understand why people eat it that way, right? 
But that's what's happened when we take Christ out of Christmas. It just doesn't make sense. So what I want to do today is really simple. It's to go over this passage that we've went over last week, but just add on a little bit more. And I pray that as we look over this passage, that you would, be, that you would do two things. That you would be reminded of the goodness of God, but also know that there is hope because he is your Lord and your Savior. You see, last week we began exploring the background of this text. The Israelites, they were a divided nation and they were conquered. They had given their allegiance away to another country. And you see, in their time of need, they were betrayed. Their people were dying. And they were in desperation. And you see, it was in that moment that Isaiah came and gave this prophecy of hope. I believe that there was a reason why God spoke to the nation of Israel at this moment. Because you see, it was only two generations ago that Israel was in its golden age. Politically, they were stable. They had just and fair kings who ruled over them. Economically, they were the richest they ever were. There was food abounding. And there was nothing for them to worry about. But you see, church, spiritually, they were dead. After Solomon, we read that king after king would come in and begin leading the nation to other gods. And they loved those gods. Because you see, they were tangible. There was the god of water. There was the god of the sun. There was the god of everything else that they could imagine. So they were spiritually dead, but they didn't realize their inner poverty because of their outer prosperity. So God allowed the nation of Israel to follow their other gods, and it led, to, it led them to being divided. And because of their choice, they fell into desperation. And it was in the midst of their desperation that Isaiah spoke of hope. And you see, church, they would not have heard the message of what Jesus would do in any other stage of their life. It had to come in the moment of their ultimate hopelessness. It doesn't matter how much you study the Bible. It doesn't matter how often you come to service. You will not understand the heights of what Jesus Christ did for you until you realize the depths of your brokenness and of your sin. And you see, the reason why God talked about the one true hope of Jesus Christ at that moment was because for the very first time in a long time, the Israelites understood how hopeless their situation was. The glitz and the glamour of political and financial strength were gone. And they realized that they had nothing and no one to lean upon. And because of that, for the first time, they looked upon the Lord. For a lot of us, we have gone through a lot of brokenness. We have gone through some of the worst lows of possible lows in 2019. And when we look into 2020, it looks even bleaker. 
And we wonder why, what is all of this that's happening in my life? I don't understand why this is happening. And yet what we see here again and again is not, is not that it's prosperity where you reach God. It is in poverty that you know who God is. And you see, it's in the times of deep hopelessness that you will see what the true hope is. And for you in your life, if you realize and if you truly understand that Jesus Christ is your one true hope, then no matter how desperate the situation is, no matter how hopeless the situation is, you will have strength. You will have the ability to endure. And yet, if your hope is not in the Lord, if your hope is in the things of this world, then God will allow crumble, allow brokenness to happen so that the things around you will crumble, so that the only place you can look is God. You see, God, he doesn't create brokenness, but he allows it to happen in order for you to reorient your heart towards him. You know, I was able to talk with Pastor James, and, and he's told me that one of the biggest struggles for teenage students is apathy. That they don't understand their need for God. And you see, church, what I've seen more and more is not, is not just that it's just youth students that don't understand their need. It's that we don't understand our need for God. And it's because we live in such a comfortable state that God allows things to break apart in our lives because it is the only way that we will finally look to the Lord. In the book of Job, one of the cornerstone books about Christian suffering, we see Satan attacking this faithful man. And Satan, he inflicts pain and hurt again and again, and yet one part that we tend to skip over is that Satan has to go to God and ask for permission every single time he wants to tempt or hurt Job. You see, church, this is why we can endure, and not only endure, why we can have joy. The pain hurts, but you see, God is in control. The temptations are difficult, but you see, God, he's in control. I don't understand what's happening in my life, but you know what? I trust that God, even in the worst times, he is in control. That even when Satan wants to tempt me, that even when Satan wants to do bad things to me, I know that he ultimately is under the thumb of Jesus Christ. And I've repeated this verse again and again because it is a verse that has spoken to me. And I pray and I hope that this verse speaks to you in Genesis 50, 20, when Joseph is looking at his brothers. And all they have done is cause trouble and hurt and pain in his life and try to destroy him again and again. And he looks at them and he says, what you meant for evil, you see, God, he uses it for good. And so even if you try to do these things, I'm okay. I'm good because I know that God has taken over, that he is in control, and that no matter what you have tried to do, God has already orchestrated that into my life. And that he is using those things for the good of those who love him. And so we see God, he speaks into the nation of Israel about hope because, church, they were in complete darkness. We said last week that in verse 2, that phrase, deep darkness, it means death's shadow or the shadow of death. 
That understanding of the shadow of death, you see, is twofold. It is, it is the darkness of the world, and it is also the darkness of our hearts. What does it mean that there is darkness in this world? There was this article in the Business Insider that talked about what would happen if the sun suddenly went out. And they said because of how fast light is, we would have eight precious minutes after the sun went out before everything would be plunged into darkness. And he said, the article said that the temperature would drop to 32 degrees Fahrenheit after the first week, and then it would drop to negative 150 degrees Fahrenheit by the end of the first year. They said that all water would freeze. They said that all plants would die. And they said that all animals and humans would eventually pass away soon after. Why am I talking about this, right? Merry Christmas, right? <laughs> Church, the sun may not go out today, but you see, it's dying. And all plants and all structures, all people, we know this are dying. And it may not be sudden, but we know that it's inevitable. Kingdoms and nations, they all rise in the beginning, but eventually they all fall. And for us, our biological clocks begin ticking the moment we are born, and they do not turn off. We can do everything, but one day we know that even for us, even for our loved ones, even for our parents, and even for our children, they will all one day pass away. Have you ever wondered why it's like this? See, the Bible says that it's because the darkness of this world is connected to the darkness of our hearts. In the book of Genesis, it tells the story of creation. And in the beginning, everything was good, and everything was forever. But God allowed Adam and Eve to make a choice, either to stay with him in perfect harmony or to fall away into sin. And Adam and Eve, they chose to fall away, and they chose darkness over light. And it was in that moment that everything began to disintegrate. Church in the Bible, another word that they sometimes use for darkness is sin. There is something within us that realizes the world isn't right. And I'm not even saying for you as Christians. I'm saying for you, anybody, all atheists, all Muslims, and all Buddhists, and every, from every country, every nation, every culture, there's something intrinsically about us that when we look out into this world and we see the condition of how this world is, we feel and we understand that it is broken and it has fallen. There's something within our very souls that understand that things aren't the way they're supposed to be. And that feeling of uneasiness, I'm going to tell you, is not from the beginning of your life. It was from the beginning of creation. Think about the gut reaction that you have when you look at murder, rape, and injustice, and slavery. Just last year, over 150 children aged 2 to 18 were found victims of forced prostitution and slavery in Wales. And our gut reaction when we hear something like that is complete anger and complete desperation. It makes us sick, and it should, because those things are evil. 
And it was in the same way in Israel because for them, they were witnessing those things firsthand that nation after nation would come in and they would conquer, rape, and pillage their men, women, and children. And they were crying out in desperation and they were so angry at the injustice that they were seeing. And you see, church, that's why for them at that time, this passage didn't make sense. And that's why during that time when Jesus lived, he didn't make sense to them. Because if you have evil in this world, then you need someone who's stronger than those evils. If you have enemies, then you need someone more powerful than them. And yet, if Jesus is supposed to come and destroy what is evil then it doesn't make sense that he would come as a baby, that he would come as weakness personified, that he would live in a stable, that he would be born to a, carpenter's, to a carpenter, that he would be born to unwed parents, that he would wash the feet of his disciples, that he would die the death of a crucified sinner. Those things don't make sense. If he was supposed to come in power, why didn't he come in power? And yet, that is the story of Jesus Christ. That is the story of our Savior, of our Lord, of our God. So for many of us, we wonder why Jesus didn't come down as this warrior, as this knight in shining armor, riding on a horse with a legion of angels, because we read in the Bible that he could have. Church, it's because if Jesus came to destroy what is evil, he would have destroyed us too. If Jesus came to destroy all of the injustice in the world, then that would have included you and me. You see the brokenness in this world. Do you know what the cause of all of that is? Do you understand where rape and all of those injustices and slavery and all of those things, violence, they come from us? And you see, for us, even though we may not think we're that bad for us we have no level of perfection for us we have not even we're not even close to what is needed for us to go to heaven you see church the reason why Jesus Christ the king of kings and the lord of lords came down as a baby the reason he lived the life of humility the reason he died abandoned is because he didn't come to destroy, he came to save. 1 Timothy 1.15 says, Here is a trustworthy saying, and I hope that you take this with full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. The meaning of Christmas is simple. The world was broken and the people were sinful. They had turned away from God, and they chose sin over him. And because of God's holiness, they were supposed to die and be separated from him forever. But God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. John 3, 16 and 17. Church, this past week 
has been very important for our nation as a whole. And whatever your political views are, it's been a difficult moment in the history of our country. There were certain expectations and hopes that many people had when the new term began. There were promises of success, promises of stability, and most importantly, promises of peace. But time and time again, we have seen these promises unfulfilled. And our hope for the future, for a lot of us, has grown dimmer and dimmer. And it's not only the president, but we have seen those things in every leadership position. We have seen those things in all leadership, in all those people that we have trusted to guide and to discern what is right in our lives. We have seen them continue to fail us again and again. Church, let me read to you verse 6. For to us a child is born, for to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. You see, church, the Israelites were ruined. They had no stability, and king after king had failed them. And yet in this passage, during their time of hopelessness, God speaks to them directly of the character and of the person of Jesus Christ. And it's interesting because if you read this carefully, in verse 6 and in verse 7, God purposely puts the four characteristics of Jesus Christ and who he is within how the government should be ruled. And he talks about the government and then he talks about who Jesus is, and then he talks about the government again. Because, you see, what God is ultimately saying is that at the end of days, it doesn't matter who our leaders or who our presidents are, that we have one true king, and that we have one true God, and he is in charge of this nation, and he is in charge of this world, and his name is Jesus Christ. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. You see, even though it may look dark now, Jesus Christ, he is a wonderful counselor. And what, good, what a good counselor does is he gives direction and wisdom to those who cannot see what is happening in the future. He is able to guide and discern the steps that are needed for those who may not know where they need to go. When he rules, he rules in wisdom. Jesus Christ is our mighty God. He defeated death and he rose again. His strength is unending. Satan may seem like he's powerful, but he's under the rule of God. So have hope because when he rules, he rules in power. Jesus Christ is our everlasting father. If you have accepted him as your savior, as your Lord, then he is your father and you are his son and you are his daughter. And just like a father would, he will protect you and he will love you. When he rules, he rules with care. And church, lastly, Jesus Christ, he is the prince of peace. We are at war with sin and with death. And because of the things that have gone on in our lives, we have endured for so long. Everything seems so hopeless at times. But have hope, church, because our God, our Lord, 
our Savior Jesus Christ has come to bring peace, and he has come to overcome this world. John 16, 30, I'm going to end with this. Jesus, he says to his disciples, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Amen? Let's pray.